0: You would take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Certainly glad to be back with you after my absence last week and to be able to start another year together with each of you. Such a joy for Sarah and I and our family. And considering the reality that we are a most favored people, that in a world that we have been told by John for months now lies in the power of the evil one, we have the opportunity to come week in and week out and to be confronted by the reality of what John, really what God has written to his church through the Apostle John, is altogether immeasurable. And you add to that the reality that we have the joy of a church family. Um, there, as I said this morning, as I prayed, there are many who we found out going into this weekend are not able to be here because they've tested positive for COVID. And um, even in that difficulty, the kindness of God and showing the care that you all have one for another in the body, um, such a joy, isn't it, to have church family and to have the gifts that grace affords us in the body of Christ. We are a people who are truly loved beyond what we are able to conceive. So we come this morning considering uh, what we close the, the year with, and that is the symmetry of the statements at the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 24, and the very first verse of chapter, excuse me, did I say that right? I don't think I did. Let me start over. The symmetry with which uh, chapter 3 ends in verse 24 and with which chapter 4 begins with verse 1. In verse 24, we see this emphasis on the gifting of the Spirit. Whoever keeps his commandments, John writes, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. There's an emphasis that the Spirit of God is at work among His people, that the church of God will be built according to the working of the Spirit because He has given us that gifting of His Spirit. But that emphasis is not there just so that we could listen to anyone who claims to have that Spirit and exult in that claim. In fact, John goes on to tell us in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. We are not called just to take every assertion that someone is, ex, has experienced the Spirit and say, okay, well that must be true and go on about life. In fact, I would contend this morning that that is one of the greatest dangers that face the modern church is that we simply take people claiming to have had an experience with the Spirit of God at face value. If you say it's true, then it must be true. Uh, and, and when we refuse to test that reality, and then we allow people into the pulpit to teach the church who in fact have not been born of the Spirit, we wind up in grave danger. And so we asked last time, how do we test? And we acknowledge the reality that the dangerous Uh, tests. The the wrong kind of tests are to just consider spiritual giftings or the use of miracles or enthusiasm or a a spiritual subjective experience because all of those things can be faked. All of these can be uh, made counterfeits of. And so we, we came to the conclusion that there really is one primary test and that is the scriptural test. That every spirit has to be brought into subjection under the words of the apostles and the prophets. John writes, we are from God. Whoever knows and listens to us, whoever, is, uh, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, the spirit of truth, we, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error in verse uh, 6 of chapter 4. So the one test that can truly show whether a person is sent from God or not, is does their teaching conform to the teaching of the apostles? Does it, does, it, does, it, does it subject itself to what the apostles have said? Because what John has told us already is that the apostles have genuine fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son. Well, today, as we look beyond those two emphases, we are going to consider another emphasis... And that is the the emphasis of Christ's sufficiency in all things. That genuine, spirit-led teaching and belief and churches are not just those who are filled numerically. It's not just those who claim to have spiritual giftings and and manifest certain types of um, outward showing and experiences of those things. But rather, the Test is whether or not the teaching of the church is submitted to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And really, what will prove that to be true is whether or not the teaching is centered on the sufficiency of Christ. We come today to verses two and three, finding really the ultimate test is Christ Himself, that Christ is sufficient. Uh, in every area. So let us stand with that in mind as we begin to read again in verse 24 of chapter 3. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God to you and I. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the solemn reality that you have inspired here for your, your apostle to write to us. That we would not take lightly the reality that many false teachers have gone out into the world and that for now 2,000 years, they have proliferated, obscuring your glory robbing the church of her genuine birthright through the spirit not allowing us to worship you for what you have done but devising so many answers to questions that you've never asked father might we ever be mindful that christ is at the center of all things might we ever seek to glory in him and in him alone Might our identity not be found in the thoughts of men, but in your word alone. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. There have been so many poor interpretations and misconstrued ideas of what the Bible actually teaches, and we should all agree on this one thing, that the Bible points to Jesus And to Christ in all of His glory. And yet to make that statement in the year 2022 is immediately to immerse yourself in controversy. Because there are many who in fact don't aim in the direction of the glory of Christ. The teaching of the Spirit will by necessity glory in Christ. It will by necessity exalt Christ for who he is and what he has done. And any teaching that does not aim at the glory of Christ has then failed. So we have to be careful that we do not remain vague in our understanding of what it means to glory in Christ, to exalt, to confess. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is what John is saying here this morning. By this you know the Spirit of God. And he doesn't go on to say by a subjective experience. He doesn't go on to say if there are particular manifestations of the Spirit outwardly that are separated from Christ. No, he says by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses a word's important that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, rather, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already, the spirit of the Antichrist is not to confess that Jesus has come in the the flesh and that Jesus is who He says He is. Rather, the spirit of the Antichrist throughout all of the ages is to undermine the very glory of God in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already learned that one of the reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil, didn't we? And we learned that those works are largely in lies propagated against the person and the work of God. And I would make the argument that that is a Trinitarian uh, problem for Satan. He, he, he likes to deconstruct and obscure um, all of who God is and what he is doing. But it is particularly aimed at Christ. Because when we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and how the Spirit applies those things into our lives, Satan is in trouble. Because those lies become undone. Because salvation has been given. Because our sins are remitted. And because God is given glory. And so Satan has sent these antichrists, these false teachers, who seemingly look like good guys, well educated, and and you you would not think at first blush are false teachers. And yet they will undermine Christ in all of His glory. And we can be sure And when that happens, those individuals who persist in their errors about Christ are not full of the Spirit of God. Because what we are told here is that the Spirit of God in our lives causes us to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh and that Jesus is from God. This is the most dependable test of whether or not someone is actual, actually exhibiting uh, the working of the Spirit, that they're actually called of God to proclaim His truth. Now, we have to be careful here. Uh, we, we, we need to not read our definition of what confessing means into the text. Uh, we've got to be careful... To not read this text and say, by this we know this, the, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come to the flesh is from God. It doesn't mean merely an individual who would just say, well, yeah, Jesus is the Christ and he's come from God. It doesn't mean just this one-time kind of profession. It, it, it's, not, it, it's not just um, flattened into one little meaning. What John is saying here is in an ongoing, continual nature that individuals who really have been called to proclaim the gospel, Christians, I think, at large, if they're really indwelled by the Spirit, will be people who confess that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he is from God, And they will do that in a way this word confessing, I think, carries with it the freight of praising or glorifying God in Christ. It it is a type of life that is astonished at the reality that Jesus has been born into the into the human flesh, that that Jesus is from the father, That, that, that Jesus is who he says he is. We will live lives not going, well, yeah, Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. I mean, what does that really have to do with our lives? Our entire lives will be consumed with praising God and giving Him glory for what He has done in sending His Son for our redemption and for the destruction of the lies of Satan. That is what the test of the Spirit really looks like an ongoing, continual praising and glorifying and pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, I would tell you that today we're not using this test. We're not living as though this were the test. Far too often, when we come into Christian circles, what we want to test whether or not a church is good or not, or whether or not an individual here in this context is actually indwelt by the Spirit, often leans more in the pragmatics. It often leads more in the man-centered categories of thought. The, the, the question often is, well, if this teaching is true, then it'll fix my problems. If this teaching is true, it won't offend me as an individual. I I won't be rebuked in my sin. Early in ministry, I, I thought repentance was a clean word for the church. I found out that people are incensed by being called to repentance. How dare you call me, almighty man, to repent? Well, friends, that is, in fact, why the church is in trouble is because we haven't been called to repent of our religious idolatry and making the church all about us. You know, here is the here's the interesting thing is that saints of old had this. And I think I've shared this with you before, this way of saying that that there is this incurvitas in say that is that sin makes us collapse in on ourselves. That when we are moving in trajectories of sin, we move inward. Everything becomes about us. We are us-centered instead of God-centered and other centered And what's interesting is that the modern church would take great umbrage at that teaching, all the while demonstrating that that teaching is true. By living lives that are not centered on the person of Christ and His work, but rather on our own preferences and needs. We have begun to be far too tolerant of ideas and thoughts that detract from the glory of Christ and what He has done in His redemptive work and far too willing to separate ourselves from fellowshipping with other believers if we are offended by who Christ really is. And by our sensibilities being called to repentance. We ask questions like, does this make us feel good? So many hinge their test of the spirits on wrong things. All of the outward manifestations of spiritual giftings, the use of miracles, enthusiasm in the pulpit or experience. You, you know, one of the greatest selling Christian books is 90 Minutes in Heaven. I think I've shared with you that I believe that if someone actually spent 90 minutes in heaven coming back this side of eternity, they would be the most despondent person ever. And we, 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 we want to major on these books. Here's the thing. It, let's say that those experiences are true. I have 66 other books of the Bible that I am called to live my life under their authority and I haven't come close to understanding The fullness of what God teaches in His Word. So why get mired down in all of this subjective, experiential stuff when the true standard is not all of these Christian authors. The true standard is the Word of God. In fact, I found that in a growing fashion, testimonies aren't even geared to Christ anymore. They're centered around us. Now, here's the joy As we give our testimony, Christ does change us. He does conform us to to His own image, doesn't He? The Spirit is constantly at work reorganizing and reprioritizing our affections and causing us to repent from sin and all of those things we can glory in. But when the end of our testimony is simply that I am different than I was yesterday and that is better for me, then we have lost the weight of the fullness of the glory of the gospel. Because here is the reality. My testimony does not terminate with me. If it's understood biblically, our testimonies terminate in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that I have experienced is only under the sovereign majesty of God so that Christ might receive glory. Now, again... The the joy in being a Christian is that God does work in our lives to conform us, but what we have to be very careful about is that we're not aiming at ourselves, but that we are continually aiming at the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sufficiency in all things. Life should not be about us. You see, we have to be careful about uh, what is emphasized. Many will exalt and exhaust in certain fashion the teaching of Christ. They will point to Christ and His teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and and everything that He says there and and they'll point to the reality of how high that morality is and and what an awesome thing. But then when it comes to the person of Christ and the exclusivity of needing a personal relationship with Christ, they will say, I'm not so sure about that. You see, that's what the modern church is doing. They are heralding the moral teaching of Jesus while forgetting Jesus Himself altogether. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is not straighten up, live right, and then God will love you. The Gospel is come to Christ, repent and believe, and He will make you anew. The gospel is that that Jesus is sufficient in all things. There is nothing that you have ever experienced that Christ is not sufficient in that particular area of your life. Every area of your life, he is in fact, if you belong to him, redeeming, making all things new. That is the gospel. And so we must be careful that we don't become people who emphasize only the teaching of Jesus while ignoring the work of Christ and what he has accomplished. Because John doesn't say here Jesus came to be the best moral teacher ever. He doesn't say he came so that society would be more comfortable for you people. He didn't come so that we would have the perfect political organization. Jesus came to redeem His people from their sin and to destroy the the works of the devil, the, the lies of Satan. And He has done that, hasn't He, church? What a joy! It's not something He's attempting to do. As we look to the reality of the coming of Christ in the flesh, and this is so important to John, all of the lies of Satan have been dispelled. What a joy that is this morning. We should marvel and and glorify God and magnify Him for what He has done in, in His Son. And it should not be hard for us to come to the question. There was a popular Christian evangelist that was asked by Larry King one time, is Jesus the only way? I was watching this segment live And I thought, this is like pee-wee t-ball theology. And he just set the ball right in front of you, swing and knock it out of the park. The only answer is yes. Well, for me, Larry. What? For you and all of creation, he is the only one. There is no there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven among men among which men by which men we must be saved. Ugh. The reality is Jesus is the only way. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. He is the exclusive propitiator, the one that can bear the wrath of God for you and I and he has done that. What a joy it is then. It doesn't matter. Y'all, can I tell you something in confidence? Being broadcast on Facebook, I am sick and tired of COVID. I am tired of politicians playing doctor. That's obnoxious. And I'm real tired of politicians being like a, a drunken big brother that doesn't know what he's doing in our best interest. Get tired of that. But you know what? All of that can rage on for the rest of my life. Oh well. Because Christ has come. And He has put away my sin. And He has put away the lies of Satan. And I am no longer what I was prior to my conversion. Because of what He and He alone has done. So we have reason to glory to, 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 to exalt the person of Christ. You see, this emphasis is on confessing that our lives wouldn't be marked by a one time confession, but on confessing with all of our lives that Christ is awesome, that he is glorious. So we have to be very careful, again, about defining what we mean by glorifying Christ, by exalting Christ, by confessing Christ, because here's the reality if we boil what what John is saying here in confessing that Jesus has come into the flesh and that he is from the Father, if we boil that down merely to an individual that says, yes, Jesus was the Son of God, then what we are doing is leaving ourselves wide open to the heresy of the Gnostics. We are leaving ourselves wide open To, in fact, believing in a Jesus, but not the Jesus. Because the Gnostics were not individuals who said, I don't believe in Jesus. The Gnostics were individuals who said, I believe in a Jesus, but I'm going to change everything about who he is, his, his person, and really his work. And what John is doing is he's confronting this one heresy and error. And I believe that we have to confront 2,000 years of heresy and error in our day. And it comes back to this test. Time and time again. False teachers will often claim that they have a relationship with God. They'll point to his teaching. They will call themselves Christians. And this is why we have to be so thoughtful in our defining of what is being said here in verses t- 2 and 3. The alarm here is being sounded about people who had crept into to the church and who were not truly Christians. They didn't totally deny Christ. They didn't totally deny the Father. If they had, if they had totally just said, I don't believe in, in, in God at all, atheists are, hard to, are, are easy to spot. But the false teachers are not so easy. And so we must also see that what is most dangerous for the church is not... Friends, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon of what is the thing that is most endangering the church today. And the answer will always slide into the political. Because we all get tired of that stuff. Um, and so the, the biggest thing is always something out there. But what John is telling us this morning is that the biggest threat to the church always comes from within. The biggest threat to the church always comes when someone has an answer to the question that never that God never asked but that we struggle with and they give us the answer and we can't see that in giving us the answer that we want, they actually do great violence to the Character into the person of who God is. That is the most present danger in every generation. It's when people come into the church and they propagate their falsehoods about who God is. Second Timothy chapter three verses uh, chapter three verses twelve and thirteen. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those who seek clarity about who Christ is and what he has done for the church will be persecuted. And by whom? By individuals who say, like Dawkins and others, that God doesn't exist? No. No. By individuals who claim to actually be following God and yet they are denying Him in their teaching the whole time. Often by false teachers who themselves are convinced of their lives. They will be deceived and they'll go on deceiving. They'll be logical. They'll be thoughtful. They'll look good. They'll be eloquent. So then the question is, what is the true test? What is the clear test of whether or not someone, if they stand up and they begin to proclaim that they're a Christian and they're saying that they're proclaiming the gospel, how can we tell whether or not they are actually doing that? And we've already answered this question. The one clear test is wrapped up in the apostolic record. If the teaching of an individual does not conform to what the first century apostles were inspired to write in the canon of scripture then it is a lie not only is christ sufficient his word is sufficient through and through listen to how John begins in his writing that which was from the beginning Jesus which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen And heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is saying... That there will be many who will manifest giftings. There will be many who have experiences. There will be many who will come into the church and beloved, they will be sincere in what they seek to get you to follow. But if it does not accord with the gospel that we have proclaimed to you, it is not from God. That is what he is saying without controversy. John says, hold on, beloved. Church, hold on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Hold on to the answers that we have been given to the questions that God has raised in His Word. Hold on to Christ in all of His sufficiency as clearly taught through the words of the apostles and the prophets. So, I mean, if we really put this in real life experience the apostles are saying look if you are not one of us if you actually have been not if you have not been called of God and inspired in the proclamation of his gospel if his spirit is not the foundation uh, of consecrating you for gospel ministry then you are nothing more than a fraud and church don't believe all of those false teachers believe Us, hold on to us, hold on to our teaching. And so in our generation, the litmus test is whether or not an individual's teaching conforms to the fullness of the Word of God. Jesus says that Christ is totally sufficient, that He is vital in every area, and that we must not wander off into false teaching by trifling with ideas friends there are so many questions that i'm asked that the answer honestly about life is i just don't know but i can tell you this if god has answered the question in his word if he has spoken about it then it it, then, then we should live on what we do know on what he has spoken and all of the other things we should be content with waiting on the lord for an answer knowing what His Word matters eternally. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on a foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. Do you know how many people in my time, short time, as your pastor have left this church and they will look at me in some form or fashion and the reason that they are going to leave is because what you are teaching I've never been taught before. And my my question in those in those circumstances is always friend, point in scripture where I'm wrong then. Please take me. In all humility, I want to be reproved by this book. And most often some version of I don't think you're wrong. I just was never taught that. That is soul crushing. Because the reality is many false prophets have gone out and they're not going to teach according to the Word of God. We must be willing to be reproved whether we are nine years old or 90 years old. And not by... and not by Braxton, but by the apostles and the prophets, by those that God inspired. We, We should all aim after a clear understanding of the word. Listen to our New Testament reading this morning and let the weight of it, not through my oration, but through the very words, sink into your soul. As Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It is so true that that is a reality today. There are many individuals who want to build buildings. They want to to build movements. They want to see the world change. They want all of these things that they have conceived in their own minds. They want their name big on the sign outside, which I've never understood. could die tomorrow and you all shouldn't have to pay to put some other idiot's name on the sign. There are many who want to distort the gospel. So tell me, where in this room is it reasonable to say theology doesn't matter? There are many who want to distort the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want a gospel of, of, of God calling you in the grace of Christ. They want a gospel of religious exercise, of the things being left up to your church choice, of, 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 of the church being centered around Uh, missionary paradigms of of the church being in in fill-in-the-blank. 2,000 years of junk wanting to be uh, supplant the gospel of grace. But here, Paul says there's one gospel. And it is the gospel of grace. And if that gospel offends you, well, then you are one of those who will go out from among us because you are not of us. And what does Paul say about those people? But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, then what? Let him be accursed. Let me give you the better vernacular. Let him be damned. Because the glory of Christ will go forward. God will exalt His Son and He will save His church. And if that offends you, friends, my heart breaks for you. Because one day that offense will be, that, that, that being against Christ and showing grace to whomever he will, it will be judged. The test then is does the teaching conform to the apostle, what the apostles and prophets have written? And we don't have room to trifle with that. So then the question is, what do do the apostles and the prophets bear record of about Christ, about Him coming in the flesh and being from God? Well, Let's read verses 2 and 3 and really get started this morning. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that that says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Well, what does that mean? Is this again just mean that someone comes in and says those words and that means they're filled with the Spirit? No, we need to break it down. First, we come to these two words that... that The name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There were these false teachers that denied who Christ actually was. They they said Jesus of Nazareth was was a man just like every other man. But when he was baptized by John in the Jordan, the eternal Christ came upon him and began to use him. And the eternal Christ continued with the man until he came to the cross, and then Christ left him. There was this man born, like every other man, born into the world to two parents, and he began to live his life and do his ministry. And as he was baptized, the spirit of divinity came upon him and continued with him throughout his life and teaching. And then when he came to the cross, that spirit left him again. That's what's being taught. That's what John is writing against. And my friends, I can tell you this. There's nothing new under the sun. People freak out about all of the, 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 the failures of, of liberal theology. Can I tell you that liberal theology is just a manifestation of Gnostic theology? Because the Gnostics said Jesus' teaching was really good, but when he, come, when, when he came to the cross, the, the Spirit of God had to leave him because that's cruel and brutal and awful. And so let's just focus on his teaching. Well, that's all that liberal theology is. Everything is just a rehash of errors that were committed in the first century church. But here John is saying, no, that is not who Christ actually is. Jesus is one person, but he has two natures. And and this has been emphasized from the beginning of the church. Many councils and, and many individuals came together to make sure that we understood. Now listen, councils are not everything. But we have to be careful about being people who throw stones at them and say they've never helped the church or been of benefit. Because, in fact, early in the church, this controversy was raging. And what the church, the conclusion they came to was, no, Jesus was, in fact, both God and man. And, and, and they expressed it in the Latin that Jesus is vera homo vera Dei. That is truly God and truly man. Jesus is the God-man. And you can't think of Jesus in terms of his humanity without deity and be right. And you also can't think of him as only deity without humanity and be right. You must think of him as truly God and truly man, as both and. We can't talk of him in one category or another because he is both. Jesus Christ, both man and God. But then what is connected to his name here is marvelous. Jesus Christ has come. Do you see what that implies? Do you see what Simeon was waiting on? Simeon wasn't waiting on Mary and Joseph to conceive a son. Simeon was waiting on the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has existed in all eternity past but was coming into the world, that God had promised from of old. What this implies is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus wasn't born, Jesus has come. He has always been, He is eternal. Then what John is writing against is don't believe in a Jesus that is merely a creation of the Father. Believe in the Jesus that is the uh, that is part of the Trinity and co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. He always has been and always will be. In fact, isn't it interesting how John begins his letter to us? That which was from the beginning. So Jesus Christ is God and man. Jesus Christ is eternal. He has come. He has not been made. He has come in the flesh. And that last part, in the flesh here, John is pushing back again at false teaching. Again at those who would say that Jesus is merely a phantom. Jesus is merely just a spirit uh, Jesus is just a theophany. Jesus just showed up in his divinity for constituent parts of his ministry. But he wasn't, body, he wasn't really a man. And, and in this one phrase, Jesus has come. Jesus is eternal and in the flesh. Jesus is both God and he is man. He is no phantom. He is no mere spirit. He is no mere theophany. He has come bodily to save His people from their sin. John wrote in verse 14 of his gospel, chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is man and Jesus is God. And so John is concerned about that. John, some of you may say, yeah, I've understood that. But friends, I think if we strain after the glory of what God has done, we will, we will come to the conclusion that we have lacked understanding more than we've had it in this area. And if we have had understanding that we have not gloried in the understanding to the degree to which we should. Because John is here concerned for one reason. All of these teachings, all of these errors around the person of Christ ultimately sought to distract away from who Jesus is and what he has done. Ultimately, these teachings, though they seemingly were benign, would rob the church of her joy and her strength to live in a, in a world that is in the power of the evil one. These teachings would distract from who he is. They would distract from the glory of his person by teaching that he was a mere man, that he was a great teacher, that, that he is one who great, gave great knowledge. There were even individuals in the first century who taught Jesus was a great teacher, he was a great man, and we'll go ahead and concede this, they would say at the end of their argument, for these people like the apostles who are so fanatical about the the two natures of both God and man, we will concede that he achieved divinity. That is rank heresy. He didn't achieve divinity. He is divinity, eternal, God the Son, both God and man, right? He is the God-man. He didn't achieve, he didn't work towards, he didn't strive after that Christ child that was born in the manger is an emphatic statement that God would come into the world as an infant and take on the humility and the indignity of having to grow in wisdom and and, and in stature and, and having to learn things and having to go through all of the the mundane things of life, he would do that to what? To redeem his people from their sin. And anyone that comes then against the gospel that Christ preached, that he would save his people from their sins. Not that he would attempt to, not that he would try to, but that he would save and say, well, if we just mess with parts of how God works over here, it's no big deal. Absolutely foolish. Or individuals who look at the doctrines of grace and the reality... That God chose His bride before the foundation of time. And if they are offended and they make this accusation, well, that's unloving. You know what they've done? They've disconnected the actual mechanism of salvation from the person of our salvation. And that's not a light thing. So here we must not be okay with trifling with the person of Christ at all. And, And it matters... Because if Jesus is not God in the flesh, if he's not truly God and truly man, then the consequences are great. Because one, that means that there was no actual humiliation of Christ. If, if Jesus was just a man who achieved divinity, then there is no humiliation. There is no emptying of himself to take on the likeness of human flesh. There is no humility and leaving the glories of heaven to come and to be born into a manger. That's not a reality, but the, the other truth is this. If he's not human, then there is no real suffering. If the Gnostics were right, the divinity left Jesus on the cross right before his crucifixion, then it was only a man who hung there. And we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And this means our sins have not been atoned for. There is no humility in Christ and there is no genuine suffering for our sins and a wrath-bearing propitiation or atonement for our sins. Our sins, in fact, have not been taken away if Jesus is not both God and man. So only when we come to the reality that he is both that we truly glory in our salvation that god has come that jesus is god and he is man that he he has always been and that he secured in his body the payment of our sin and that that eternal payment will never be undone beloved you know we stand with that assurance this morning that we can know that our sins have been atoned for perpetually. They have been paid for in the body of God. He has bore the the consequence of our sin in his body in such a way that there will never be an exhaustion of that payment. God will never look at us in eternity and say, well, Jesus paid for some of it. We will be eternally secure with him forever. What a joy that is. You see, that's what false teaching always does. False teaching, what we've just talked about, just distracts from the fullness of the glory of God. That's what these Gnostics were doing, and it turns out to be fatal in a spiritual sense. But continually, we find individuals who want to trifle with the words of God Who who want to obscure the glories of God in small ways and they think it's really no big deal. But beloved, it is a big deal. Because our salvation is of infinite importance. And the glory of God is ever before us. And we are going to worship Him for what He's actually accomplished. How dare we ever perpetrate even the smallest lie when it's connected to the person and the work of Christ. You know, I've been helped so much in my own understanding this week of taking a class. And and I I just was struck with conversation uh, or teaching in a a, a lecture that was so simple. And yet to me, again, so simple and yet so encouraging and profound. And this brother in Christ um, just kind of pointed to the reality that, that, that we tend to, as human beings, take away from the glory of God in his redemptive work. And that we should not think that's a small thing. And I think that's what John's writing about here. And so this particular individual said, you know, it's really, in a roundabout way, it's important that we, when we're considering doctrine, and we're, when we're considering what's important to fight for and to defend, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints according to the apostles... And the prophets, what we have to do is see big, upper-level doctrine, what is clear, and allow that to interpret things that may be a little bit murky in our minds. And so he brought me to the question of, in the Trinity, and I ask you this this morning, in the Trinity is there perfect symmetry and unity? Is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit achieving the same ends, the same goal with perfect unity and symmetry inside the Godhead? And the answer is yes, isn't it? Can't we all say yes and amen to that? God is perfectly symmetrical and perfectly unified in the accomplishment of redemption. If a Baptist church can't amen that, I don't know, we're in a world of hurt. But can I tell you that the sad reality is this. So many in the Baptist church and every other denomination in our nation for hundreds of years now have have been perpetrating a gospel that sounds good but it trifles with, it obscures the glory of what God has been doing in our redemption and it does it in this way. They will teach you that Jesus died for everyone. You heard that? Jesus died for the whole world. So he's working on one group of people. Then you step into the silo of the Trinity and remember the Trinity, never mind, I, we got to, anyway, uh, there's perfect unity in the Trinity. But we step away from Jesus dying for all and they will say, and the Spirit calls everyone who hears the gospel, everyone who hears the From a preacher, the gospel, the Spirit is calling all of those individuals. They'll say that, the Bible doesn't, but they will. You heard that? So we're already disconnected and working on two different groups of people, aren't we? The unity's already fallen apart. But then they'll come to the third group and they'll say, and God will look down the tunnel of time and all those people that the Spirit has worked on, those who have their own volition and their own goodness and their own morality... That's nowhere in the Bible. Those people, as God looks through the tunnel of time, and the individuals who choose God, then God the Father will choose them back. And so we move from God the Son being available for the widest group of people, the Spirit limiting a little bit, and the, the Father dwindling it the most. And what we wind up with, the most important obstruction here, is you are obscuring the glory of the Trinity in dividing the Trinity amongst itself. When the the Bible teaches this, and I hope this doesn't offend you, because it just causes me to worship. It's not offensive. But God the Father elected those for whom the Son would die, and then the Spirit calls those same individuals to repentance and faith and regenerates them and births them anew into the kingdom. That is perfect symmetry in the work of redemption. And it absolutely matters. You see, one turns God. And I'm this, sorry, you're going to see that this has kind of consumed my thinking this week. The, the one where Jesus dies for everyone and the Spirit calls everyone who hears. And then God chooses according to what man chooses. Do you know who's really at the end of that system? Man. And it also puts God on a continuum and a timeline. And can I tell you this this morning with all certainty as your pastor? God doesn't exist in time. Time exists in Him. He is eternal. And when He gave us eternal life, it wasn't conditional on us. It wasn't dependent on us. It wasn't because of us. It was because He is benevolent and He chose to do this out of the kindness and the riches of His own mercy. And when we understand that the the, the culmination of our salvation, it doesn't allow for us to glory in ourselves at all. Do you know what happens in our lives? We are humbled before a triune God and we begin to worship Him in truth. And it's only then that we'll really give our lives for him. And consequently, people will say, well, if if God the Father chose before the foundation of the world who he was going to die for, and Jesus only died for them, and the Spirit only ultimately draws those individuals, then there's no reason that anybody will ever want to evangelize. Wrong. Until that be the reality, I would contend with you, evangelism isn't really happening. Because what we are telling people is a gospel, not the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus has come in the flesh to save his people from their sins. This text teaches us that the the divinity of Christ matters. All of the Bible teaches us about how God is redeeming his bride. And we find in the end of the analysis of the person of Christ. Well, John puts it this way. Knowing that we've received eternal life from a triune, unified Godhead. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And if someone were to come up to me today and say, Jay, why is it that you have eternal life? How is it that you have the confidence of that reality? Should my answer be because I went to Bible college? Because I'm a really good guy. Sarah, don't laugh. Because I fill in the blank whatever arrogant answer. Because I'm a real religious person. No, you know, when we just rest in what the Bible teaches, we actually have a good answer and it's the gospel. And the answer is, I have eternal life because the Father chose from the foundation of time to redeem a people for His own glory. And in the fullness of time, He sent His only begotten Son into the world to pay the penalty of my sin. And 2,000 years later, As a young man in a small, obscure town in Fayette, Missouri, the Spirit of the living God applied the work of that Son to my account, regenerated me, caused me to see that Christ is worth not part of my life, but all of my life. And I turned to Him in faith and repentance. That's the only answer that we can ever give that accords with Scripture. There is no other gospel. There is no other name by which we may be saved. But you pray with me. Father God, what weighty things we deal with in your word and what weighty things you have revealed to us. Help us not to be individuals who trifle with your word. Father, help us not to be individuals that fight over theological labels. What a foolish game that is. Help us to reach for clarity of who Christ is and what he has done. Help us in our individual lives to apply the Word in such a way that You would receive glory. Our lives are not ultimately about our own comfort, our own joy. Our joy comes from knowing that You have saved us according to Your work and Your Word. Might we be faithful with it.